And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Slam and Jam here on the Athletic NBA Show. Go to theathletic.com slash NBA Show and get the Athletic for a discounted rate. With me, as always, on the show is my good friend Alex Spears. Alex, tell me what happened in the NBA this week. Well, Andrew, it all started last Friday night with the 2024 Ruffles Celebrity Game. That's right, it was All-Star Weekend, an event. NBA fans tell themselves they're not watching this year because it's so bad. Find themselves watching it anyway and then spend the next week complaining about having watched it. On the positive side, the Steph versus Sabrina shootout was fun, the three-point contest was great, and the Rising Stars Tournament continues to be an improvement on the old format. The dunk contest, which was won by a player with 65 career NBA minutes for the second year in a row, was a snoozer, and the main event on Sunday was arguably the worst in a recent run of unwatchable All-Star games. The East beat the West 211, that's right, 211 to 186, the most points ever scored in an All-Star game. NBA Commissioner Adam Silver was visibly miffed and peeved while presenting the trophy to the Eastern Conference, ending the weekend on a bit of a sour note. We also had news during All-Star break. The Brooklyn Nets, who had lost 23 of their previous 31 games going into the break, fired head coach Jacques Vaughn. The Nets replaced him with Kevin Ollie, who, interestingly, was Troy Weaver's choice for Pistons head coach this past summer. Would he have been a better choice of Monty Williams? Could he have been worse? Well, we'll get to see what Ollie can do with this Nets team, who started off the Kevin Ollie era on Thursday night with a 24-point loss to the Toronto Raptors. And for the third consecutive week in a row, it would be a week in the NBA without more weird Bucks stuff. There was so much weird Bucks stuff this week that J.R. Radcliffe of the Milwaukee Journey Sentinel was able to write an article ranking the Bucks-related controversies during the All-Star break. That's right, the Bucks generated enough content in a five-day span to support a six-spot power ranking. The highlights included Giannis letting us know that he doesn't watch basketball, Dame leaving Giannis off of his dream starting five, and Doc Rivers revealing that he told the Bucks ownership, quote, I don't understand why you're doing this when they hired him. And that doesn't even include that J.J. Reddick called out Doc this week for his history of excuses, a comment that snowballed into a multi-day war of words that involved Patrick Beverly, Austin Rivers, and Marcin Gortat. The point <laughs> is, it was great to have some basketball to watch on Thursday night. The Thunder got a dominant 129-107 to win over the Los Angeles Clippers at home, with SGA leading the way with 31 points on 19 shots. Uh, the win puts the Thunder a game and a half up on the Clippers and gives them the regular season tiebreaker. The Dallas Mavericks won their seventh game in a row, beating the Phoenix Suns 123-113 to at home behind Luka's 41 points. The win moves the Mavs above the Suns into the sixth spot in the West standings. And don't look now, but that wheel of fandom bump is still going strong for the Charlotte Hornets, who won their fourth game in a row on Thursday beating the Jazz on the road, 115-107. to What a night it was, Andrew. What a night indeed. The Hornets are still blowing my mind that they yeah. just are rolling with uh, with Trey Mann at the helm. I, I want to talk about the top of the West. First, we're going to get into our bet MGM line of the week, which involves the top of the West. It's who is going to win the Northwest Division. And I think it kind of that obviously bleeds into this conversation about the top of the West, really just excluding the Clippers. But uh, BetMGM has the Timberwolves at plus 100 to win the West, the Thunder at plus 170, and the Nuggets at plus 375. It does feel like the it's going to be between the, the Thunder and the Timberwolves here. Uh, Wait, what, why? Uh, hold on a second. You didn't mention any Clippers odds. They don't even care about the Clippers? 
Well, this is just for the Northwest Division. That's why. Oh, just oh, just for Northwest. Okay, yeah, yeah. That's for just for the line of the week. Yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, the the Wolves and the Nuggets play three more times the rest of this season. Yeah. That's one thing that's really interesting about the top of this race is that the the Wolves and Nuggets play each other several more times. They play the Clippers. The Thunder are done playing the top four seeds in the West, which will very much help them because someone has to lose those games. <laughs> and like, That's right. I, I think if if the Thunder wants to be the top seed, obviously you're you're hoping that Denver wins a majority of those games against the Wolves because that could help the Thunder gain some ground there. Uh, but I think it's pretty interesting. I still probably favor the Timberwolves to finish at the top of the Western Conference, but the Thunder are going to have a really good chance. Uh, one thing that's interesting within this race is that not only will this determine playoff seedings, I think the top of the West is going to determine who wins the most valuable player in the NBA. I think that if the Thunder finish first or even second, if they're above the Nuggets, I think Shea is going to have a really good chance to win the MVP. If the Nuggets can go on some miraculous run and finish at the top of the West, which is not impossible, I think they only have a 1.3% chance at the top seed, according to basketball reference. But still, if they somehow did that, I think Jokic would win it. And then I, t- I still think Kawhi is like this sneaky candidate who's been outrageously efficient. I saw him play in person last night. Although they did get blown out by the Thunder, there were points of that game where Kawhi was unstoppable. He was 8 of 9 from the field at one point, And it wasn't on wide open shots. It was... These like self-generated kind of like back you down, fade away shots, really tough shots that were highly contested that he was just automatic. If he got within like 14 feet, like it was just over. And so I, I wonder if the Clippers can kind of get on a roll like they had been. Like could Kawhi be the player that gets there if they could surpass the Thunder, which is still not impossible. Like they're only a game and a half. But something that was interesting from last night is that the Thunder now hold the tiebreaker with the Clippers and the Nuggets, which is a pretty big deal. And then they are tied with the Timberwolves. So if the Timberwolves, they had, their series is 2-2. Now the Thunder are like really rooting for the Nuggets to beat the Timberwolves because I think it goes to divisional record after, uh, or is it conference record? I think it's conference record um, afterwards. And so now they need the Nuggets to kind of put it on the Timberwolves if they want to finish with the top seed because they do not hold the tiebreaker. Uh, but those tiebreakers, I think, are going to matter quite a bit um, as we get down to the end of the season. So t- to me, this race for the top of the West is so, so interesting. H- who do you who do you favor at this point, Al? Um, I'd, I'd probably still go with Minnesota. I, I, you're asking about like number one seed. Yeah. Um, although I do. You know, I think the MVP conversation is a little more interesting than you're giving credit, Andrew, because of the Luca factor. Like, yeah. the the Mavs have won seven in a row. Mm-hmm. Now they are still four games back of Denver for the four seat. Mm-hmm. Do you think it would take completely closing that gap? Because we kind of thought of those top four teams kind of on their own tier. Yeah. Do you think it would take closing that gap, which would be very hard to do? Um, four games is a pretty big gap. To yeah. to to have to make Luca a a real threat for the MVP or do you think think he could win it even if they end up as like the fifth seed and you know two games back of Denver I think it's going to be tough just because Shea and Jokic are such viable candidates and their teams are just having more success it has happened in the past where a team that is not one of the top seeds has won the MVP I mean Westbrook is one of them but more often than not it's a team toward the top that, you know, has the player that wins it. And I think just the viability of Shea and Jokic is probably too much for Luka to overcome, even though statistically he's had a ridiculous season. Yeah, I, I do think it would take a continuing of this current run that they're on, which which is possible. I mean, you look at the like strength of schedule left, mm-hmm. and of course it's it's not a perfect metric or anything, but you know, OKC, Dallas, Minnesota, all in the bottom 10 in terms of yeah. like, like, like easiest schedules. Um, the Clippers are at 11th toughest schedule. And then Denver is kind of right in the middle. 
So it probably won't play a huge factor outside of the Clippers, um, maybe potentially, because they, they do still have, you know, two games against the Wolves, game against Cavs, game against the Nugs, two games against the Suns. So we'll see. That's why I wouldn't favor the Clippers out of those four teams. And I'll probably just stick with Minnesota just because it does feel like they're really starting to hit a groove over these last two weeks. Um, they do have a, a challenging schedule, though. I mean, I, I said that they're in the bottom 10, but still, like, two games against the Clippers, three games against the Nuggets, like you mentioned, two games against the Suns, two games against the Cavs. They're going to have some really tough ones down this home stretch, which will be fun to watch. But, yeah, I, I would still probably favor them. Yeah, I think I do, too. I mentioned Kawhi was amazing last night, but clearly Shea Gilders-Alexander was the best player on the floor last night in, in Thunder Clippers. He was dominant in so many ways as a passer, obviously as a ball handler who can change speeds and, and certainly slow down better than almost anybody in, in the game. I think Norm Powell is like still flying somewhere after Shea just like absolutely put him on skates. I, I think that's a really interesting storyline. I think that he could win the MVP. And then what does he look like going into the playoffs? What does this Thunder team look like going into the playoffs? I think a lot of people are underestimating them just because of their age. We haven't seen uh, them play in the playoffs yet, which I think are good reasons to doubt them because we just haven't seen it yet. But I'm I'm very curious to see what this looks like and what, what does Mark Dugnall look like? How does Jalen Williams adjust in the playoffs? Because right now, like Jalen Williams and... And Shagels Alexander are, are like a dynamic duo in the league that I think could dominate the league for a long time. And they're just starting to put it together a little bit. And it's so interesting to see them put it together against the Clippers because those two are like the first part of like the primary package that got uh, Paul George to the Clippers. And so it's just interesting watching those two against the Clippers, just knowing the history between those two and just seeing the Thunder just dominate them. And some of it is the Clippers are coming off the all-star break in which some of them came directly from their vacation destinations. You know, the Thunder practiced here at home the day before. No, they definitely were ready to seize that moment. I don't I don't know that the Clippers were as ready to seize the moment as the Thunder were last night, but uh, it's going to be interesting to see the Thunder back in the playoffs. The crowd was certainly ready for it last night. The players were ready for it. Um, and I'm really interested to see how this top four race ends up. And if you want more on the top four race, go check out The Bounce. Zach Harper wrote about it this morning. You go to the athletic.com backslash The Bounce. You can get the newsletter every single day in your inbox. It's very, very good. And he gives uh, a lot of great details in there about the top four race in the Western Conference. Uh, Andrew, before we, before we move on, uh, the question on the tip of everyone's tongue. Hmm. Does Alexei Pokushevsky get another shot in the league, or have we reached the end of the Poku journey? I, I think the Poku journey's over. I think no. I think that I think that Poku is going back home. No, just a legendary uh, EuroLeague player. I just I think I think it's over for Poku. Shout out to Poku. Um, sad day. It's a sad day. In the hearts and minds of all basketball fans, I would say, to see some of the most entertaining basketball I watched the first half of his rookie season, we'll never forget it. Yeah, uh, he genuinely started to become like a solid NBA player. He started to show flashes of being a solid NBA player last year. Yeah, and then he gets hurt, and it just like completely throws off his summer. He never got back in the rotation, and now it's just over. It's over so quick. It's over. Gone, gone, but not forgotten, Poku. Never forgotten. Okay, Andrew, we are officially in the post-All-Star break period. A very weird time in the basketball calendar. Mm-hmm. Pretty soon, we're going to start seeing random players having 40-point games. Denny Avdia actually got it started early with 43. <laughs> Hit again last Denny. week. Shout out, Denny. Shout out, Denny. Uh, it will become increasingly difficult to tell whether what we are seeing from young players is real or a mirage. But Andrew won't all be fake. There will be players making a pre-leap, the leap before the leap. A recent example, Kobe White, who saw his efficiency significantly improve in the post-All-Star break period last season, which then led to a full breakout campaign this year. Campaign. Uh, and so, in a couple months, I'll be going through a, a, a real list of pre-leap players, the young players who saw a dramatic improvement in their statistical output 
from the pre to post All-Star break period. But I thought it'd be fun to try and identify today who those players are going to be. Who are the players that will make a pre-leap this spring? So I have four candidates for you, Andrew, listed in order of confidence. Mm -hmm. And as a present to you, I've left the fifth spot open so that while I'm talking, you can think of a player you'd like to add to the list. Now, the only real rule I gave myself was no rookies because it's not uncommon for rookies to look better in the spring. I'm more interested second, third, fourth-year guys who we already know pretty well and who could potentially make a star jump next season. Now, uh, this wasn't easy, Andrew. You, you know, you're trying to find players who have that right mix of increased opportunity, underperformance thus far for one reason or another, and then the talent level to make a real leap. And then when you compare the pre to post All-Star break splits in a few months, you want to see something dramatic. So here's my list. I'm going to go four to one in order of who I have the least to most confidence in being a pre-league player this spring. They obviously all made the list, so I'm somewhat confident in all of them, but that's how I ordered it. So number four, pre-league candidate, Anthony Simons. I've always liked Simons. He had that incredible run in January, February 2022 when Dane was out. He was becoming absolutely lethal as a high-volume three-point shooter, took a leap as a pick-and-roll operator, and so going into the season, I was expecting really big things. And then he gets hurt in his very first game. He misses the next 18. He comes back, and over his next 10 games, averages 28 per game. For the season, though, he's below 23 per game, which is only slightly above where he was last season. He's still been great from three, but he hasn't been as good inside the arc compared to previous seasons. And that probably has a lot to do with the defensive attention he's getting. Danny Morang tweeted out a list of the top five ball handlers who get blitzed the most. Now, unsurprisingly, Luca is number one. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. And Simons is number two. Mm -hmm. The other names in the top five, Steph, KD, and Booker. Now, the defensive attention probably isn't changing that much. I've been to several Blazers games in person over the past couple of months, and there are multiple lineups where you do not have to worry about the majority of guys on the court for the Blazers. I think he's going to figure it out, though. He'll continue to get better as the season goes on, and he'll be a better player in the long run as a result. I'm betting that his scoring average the rest of the season will be closer to what we saw at the beginning of the season when he was up around 28 per game. So that's my number four pre-leap candidate. Number three pre-leap candidate going into the spring, Keegan Murray. Now, this is somewhat of an easy call, in my opinion, because Keegan is having a good year. He's taken a big jump defensively. His scoring around the rim is up to 71%. In the floater range, he's gone from 38% to 54% per clean the glass. The only real blemish is that he's not shooting the ball as well from three. He's shooting 35% from three after shooting 41% last season and setting the rookie record for most three-pointers made. But if you look at it more closely, he's shooting an absurd in a bad way 27.4% from the corners. Mm. After shooting 42% from the corners last season. Mm -hmm. I just don't buy that. And so I'm expecting a big bounce back post Ulster break because he's just too good of a shooter. If he gets back anywhere close to normal there, he'll be a 17, 18 points per game score post Ulster break with good efficiency almost everywhere else on the court. So he is my number four. He is my number three. <laughs> By the way, I did rearrange these guys as I was doing it. Okay. Once upon a time, Keegan was my number four, but then I moved him to number three. Uh, number two pre-lead candidate, Evan Mobley. You know, with the emergence of Chet and Wimby this year, it does feel like Mobley has become a bit of a forgotten man. You know, he was once upon a time the, the darling in terms of a, a, a young big man. Mm -hmm. The injury this season, which kept him out of 22 games, it only added to that feeling, especially as the Cavs were winning basically every game they played while he was out. But he's back healthy now, and most importantly, he is no longer on a minutes restriction. And listen, he's having a good season. Highest true shooting percentage of his career. Rebound, rebounding has improved from his first two seasons. But I think there's a bigger leap coming. And one of the really encouraging things since his return from injury is that he's starting to take more threes. Silently, quietly, very quietly. In his first 21 games of the season, he took 10 three-pointers total. In the 10 games since returning from injury... He's taken 15 threes and hit eight of them. Now that is super small sample, but it's great. It, you know, it's great that he's hitting them, but just the fact that he's taking them more regularly is so encouraging for his individual future and also the potential of keeping him together with Jared Allen. 
So I think if he continues to slowly increase that three-point attempt rate, I think we're going to see a pretty big jump in terms of the pre- to post-All-Star break split here in a couple months. So that's why he's number two, which brings me finally to the number one pre-elite candidate. Any guesses, Andrew? Hmm. I have no idea. No idea? Well, it is someone I watched last night, and I'll be honest, watching him last night made me bump him all the way up to number one. It is Devin Vassell. Yeah. Now, Vassell has had a, a good season so far. The big improvements have been around the rim. He's gone from 61% last year to 71% this year. In the floater range, he's improved from 35 to 51. His, stouty, his counting stats are almost identical to last season, basically 19-4-4. Four and four. Again, it's been a good season, but I think there's a lot more there. He's gradually becoming highly efficient in every area on the court. The only area that's lagging a bit is his above-the-break threes, where he's shooting 35% on five-and-a-half attempts per game. In addition, he's also starting to get more opportunities. So he could have an improvement with the threes, but also he's just getting more opportunities. For the season, he's under 15 shots per game. But in the 10 games leading into the All-Star break, he was up to 18 shots per game. He got another 18 last night um, against the the Kings. If he can just improve on his three-point shot a little bit, I think with the increased shot attempts, we could be looking at a guy who's scoring closer to 25 per night than 19 per night post-All-Star. So that is my number one pre-leap candidate. Uh, That's the list. We'll check back in a few months, Andrew, see how I did. Is there anyone you would like to add to the list? Yeah, I think somebody that is going to get more of an opportunity and was bumped into the starting lineup last night for the Indiana Pacers is Ben Matherin, who had a really Mm. hot start to his rookie season and then kind of faded as his efficiency faded. But they traded Buddy Heald, and there's more minutes and opportunity, kind of similar to some of the guys you talked about, because some of this is just opportunity. Does he get the shots? Last night he played 35 minutes. It was against... Pistons so you know grade that on a curve but he had 15 6 and 5 and really the thing for him that needs to improve the most is his court vision and his just ability to make his teammates better and he I've seen him have like more of a willingness to do that recently and so if he can do that while making more threes which is his three-point percentage has been better this year than it was last year I think he can start to carve out a role there because I I I think part of the reason of moving Buddy is to open up minutes for Ben, who is a really good player and a player that I think if he can reach his ceiling, the Pacers are going to be a better team. And so I don't think there's somebody you know pushing him coming off the bench. You know, T.J. McConnell is a bench player. You know, ben Shepard has come in and played a little bit of minutes for them. He's a bench player. McDermott is probably a bench player. So I don't think there's anybody necessarily putting pressure on him there. And so... I'm interested to see, especially when they get fully healthy. Perhaps he does move back to the bench when this team is fully healthy again. But I think that he could take on a bigger role as he kind of as the Pacers kind of move throughout the rest of their season and into next season. Um, yeah, he he was. I, I I made an initial list like just by going through every team, mm-hmm. and I maybe coming up with like ten names. He was on that list. Uh, I also put Andrew Nemhart on there because I was like maybe he'll be. Yeah, Nemhart's going to play more. He played. Yeah, he played a lot last night. Too. I was looking at uh, Okongwu before I found out that his injury is going to be a lot longer. Uh, I was looking at some of the Houston guys, like could Jabari Smith Jr. Yeah, I thought about Jabari Smith. The problem with Houston is that they just feel like a team that wants to hit the accelerate button again, you know, this summer. And so does that? You know who? You know who could do it just because he's been so bad mm-hmm. uh, is Jalen Green. If Jalen Green was just like mediocre, it would represent yeah. a pretty significant improvement from where he's at right now because he's shooting like. He's shooting under 31% from three on six and a half attempts per game. He, he wasn't good previously. He shot 34% both his first two seasons. But if he just got back to what he has done, yeah. it would represent a pretty significant jump. I don't know if I would count that as a pre-leap, though. Um, I wondered about Quentin Grimes, too. Like, I don't know how yeah. to predict what's going to happen in Detroit with any of these guys, to be honest. Like, I think that we know like Cade and Ivy, Duran, and probably Asar are going to be the young guys that play. I mean, are they going to invest in Quentin Grimes because they kind of got him instead of a first round pick for those for the guys that they traded for for Boyan? Yeah. And so, what it what is he? Is there enough room for him to play if you're playing Cade and Ivy? Can you play th- that three guard lineup with those guys? 
I don't know. I mean, I think there's a lot of questions to be answered there. So I, I, it's hard for me to that. That is like a that's a big jump for this leap. You know, I, I don't know that I could predict that Grimes to, could do it, but he definitely has like the skill and like showed that in New York last year. But th- does he get the opportunity? A lot of this is just opportunity, and that's why I think Ben Mathern yeah. is kind of an interesting test case. Okay, so those are our five names. Can I remember them off the top of my head? Uh, uh, ben Matherin, Anthony Simons, Keegan Murray, Evan Mobley, and Devin Bissell. Yeah. So keep an eye on those guys, and we'll check back in a couple months and see if they did have a pre-leap this spring. Also, shout out to Trey Mann, who is getting an opportunity. So, yeah, he, he seemed like way too obvious, because like obviously his pre-All-Star break splits are going to be incredibly uh-huh. low because he did not play so he's <laughs> definitely going to be one i guess but i don't know we'll have to we'll actually i have to watch him to decide whether it's a pre-leap yeah yeah uh speaking of obvious we're going to talk about maybe the most obvious player to ever talk about when it comes to the spurs so we're talking about victor webb and yava and the spurs with matthew tynan right after this break this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the nba want to get closer to the game than ever before Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service that you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, Andrew, it is time for the Wheel of Fandom, our weekly segment where we spin a wheel, it lands on a team, and we become fans of that team for the next week. Last week, the wheel landed on the San Antonio Spurs. Now, the majority of Spurs week was spent watching uh, the All-Star festivities, where rookie phenom Victor Wembanyama made several appearances. The game, though, that we got to watch, it was only one of them, but what a game it was. Kings, Spurs. Kings win a close one, 127-122. What a game for the Spurs. Wamby was one assist shy of a 5-5-5, putting up 19-13-4-5-5. Devin Vassell had 32 on 18 shots. Now, it was still a loss, however, and the Spurs are now 11-45, 15th in the West, with the 28th-ranked offense and 23rd-ranked defense per cleaning glass. Andrew, if our favorite team is the Spurs, who is our guest? We've got Matthew Tynan. He's the host of the Small Market Bias Show. It's a San Antonio Spurs podcast. He also writes a Spurs newsletter on Substack called Corporate Knowledge, which you can find at matthewtynan.substack.com. Matthew, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, of course. I appreciate y'all having me on. So we got to watch another crazy statistical game from Victor Wimbanyama last night. One assist shy of a 5 by 5 Only two games after he had a triple-double with blocks. Mm-hmm. Wimby has obviously gotten a ton of coverage this year, but as someone who has watched every game that he's played, what aspect of his game or development this season do you think has been most overlooked by the national media? 
think really just the his ability to tighten up his game. You know, some weird stuff was happening at the beginning of the season. I think, uh, you know, the Point Sohan exper- uh, experiment got a whole lot of coverage. Obviously, a bunch of people didn't like it. It didn't work out too well. Um, but there was also an element in there uh, during media day. Pop had talked about letting Victor just kind of do, let Victor be Victor, essentially, for the first several weeks maybe a couple of months whatever the arbitrary cutoff was just to like see what he was capable of doing now as the season is progressing we're more and more seeing him locate his strengths on the court find the spots that he likes because genuinely prior to the season I even asked him about this he didn't know where his his spots were on the floor. He had an idea, I guess, but even when he was playing in France, he had sort of this free reign, essentially. Like, he could kind of do whatever he wanted to do. So, it, it, the the early stages of Victor's season were comprised of him just sort of experimenting. And now we're seeing him really tighten up his game. He's not getting ahead of himself as much as he used to. He still turns the ball over a little bit, but he's dribbling into crowds less you know these guys whenever he puts the ball on the floor they're like piranha because he's dribbling the ball so high and they're they're like at his belly button and they're trying to get in there and poke the ball away from him um so you're seeing him more under control taking his time a little bit more when looking for his shot but i think more than anything in terms of the the larger scope of things, everyone knows about the blocks. Everyone knows that he can get hot, that he can put up points, that he can dunk on almost anybody. But it's his passing. Uh, he he still makes some bad decisions. But the thing that I that at least for me and I and even talking with uh, asking Pop these questions surprised him a little bit was they didn't know how good he was good he was as a passer and some of the uh, some of the thing he can see over the top of everybody, obviously, but it's not even the over the top sort of stuff that has been so impressive. He's able to find gaps in the defense and lanes in the defense that aren't typically there for a lot of people. But his arms are so long that he can reach around defenders and and spin it back to a, a defender or a, a teammate coming from the opposite side of the floor, whatever it might be. But I think in general, it's his passing that has been so impressive and maybe a little bit of a surprise that maybe people aren't necessarily uh, seeing at a national level. So through 56 games, the Spurs are 11:45. Last season, at the same point of the season, the Spurs were 14 and 42. Now that team did have Yaka Pertle for 46 games, but most of the supporting cast is also on this year's team. Are you surprised that this team hasn't won more games despite getting an all-time rookie season from Wembenyama? And what are some of the major reasons why this team hasn't been able to improve on last year's record? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a little bit surprised. I think most of us, I wasn't in the camp of like I think they're they're over under to at the beginning of the season was somewhere around 28 something like that. Mm. Uh, I wasn't someone who expected them to. I figured that they would sort of be right in that range. I didn't think that they would make some giant leap because there was this, you're introducing this uh, sort of this incredibly unique player to a team, like you said, that returned a whole bunch of players. But when you introduce a guy like that into a system, it's going to really change a lot of things because obviously you're not doing the same stuff with, with Jakob Pertl. Or down the stretch of last <laughs> yeah. season when Zach Collins was the starting center, you're you're obviously not doing the same stuff with Wembenyama. I didn't expect his usage to be so high. I mean, he's up over thirty percent, and he was from the start. So I, I didn't expect that to necessarily be the case. When you factor that in, and you bring it, you have a team that's around him that was used to playing a certain way without this sort of phenom this guy that's going to have the ball and and be the offensive hub from day one, obviously things are going to change. So it's not surprising that, that there has been some, uh, you know, over the course of the season, just kind of adjusting to that. But then also, and this is the thing that I really didn't think about, although like in hindsight, the hindsight's obviously 2020, 
But this is something that I, I look back on and I'm like, oh, you know what? That absolutely should have been a factor from day one when sort of prognosticating about what this, you know, what this team's record is going to look like. And that is last year, teams really did not care about the Spurs. Like they let their guard down early in the season. The Spurs got off to a really hot start. They were like six and two, six and three to start the year. And then all these injuries started happening and the, and you know, the, the, the tank was on, you know, they were sitting guys left and right. I think they had like four, two different starting lineups last season. So obviously the, as everyone saw the tank was on the thing that I did not take into account was like teams were coming after the Spurs from day one this year. They had heard about Victor Wembanyama for two years. Everyone is asked asked about him. Like, think every single superstar in the NBA at some point, even before Victor Wembanyama got into the league, uh, people are asking them, "Did you watch Scoot versus Wemby in Vegas? Are you watching uh, all the Mets '92 games that are being broadcast on the NBA app?" Like, they're hearing about this guy constantly. So, yeah, the thing that I didn't account for was the fact that like teams were coming after the Spurs from the start. Yeah. So. They're not they're not facing these good teams that let their guard down and and you know the the feisty Spurs are going to come in and give them a run for their money or whatever. No, they're coming after them from the start. And this is the youngest team in the league. They got even younger, getting rid of Doug McDermott at the trade deadline. They're not a very good shooting team in a league where you really need shooters. They get rid of their best shooter. So um, all of that. Uh, taking all of that into account, like, yeah, I thought they might be a little bit better. We're starting to see a lot more improvement on the defensive end. Like, uh, before last night, over the past 10 games, they've been in the top 15. I think they were 13th overall in defensive rating over a 10-game span. So we're seeing improvement, but it's been a process from the start. So, yeah, I I expected a few more wins, but not not something drastic. I didn't think that there would be some massive leap from last year to this year. Yeah, you mentioned their defense. I was looking at cleaning the glass over the last two weeks. Um, cleaning the glass has them at 16th, which is mm. definitely improvement from where they yeah. were previously. They were historically bad last year. Literally the worst defensive rating in the history of the NBA last year. So uh, any any <laughs> jump from there is uh, is an improvement. Uh uh, Jeremy Sohan became a part of a national conversation early on in the season with the Point Sohan experiment. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people were really upset about the experiment and like took this very personally. It was a very, very strange time. Like an affront um, to basketball. Yeah. Uh, and they, we were mad because it was affecting Wimby. Uh, yeah. It's been a Sohan Wimby front court since Zach Collins was taken out of the starting lineup in early December. And now Trey Jones has started the last 22 games. How has Sohan's play been since these changes were made? Yeah, so in talking to people whenever they were going through the Jeremy Sohan point guard experiment, like I never got the sense that they were looking at this as a, I mean, of course, unless he just took off and was unexpectedly incredible at a position he'd never played. uh, This was never going to be like, oh, Jeremy Sohan is the point guard of the future. This is kind of like, we need to mold his skill set. We need to uh, like you go back to I think it was like what 2016 when Jason Kidd was playing Giannis at point guard you know you saw a lot last year you saw a lot of Scotty Barnes at point guard uh, so I think there was this idea with the Spurs like we know this guy's a good passer uh, we know he's multifaceted so like let's see what he can do and and not just let's see what he can do like let's build up his repertoire basically but it's funny especially here recently there was sort of a transition where once the the lineups changed and Sohan wasn't the point guard, so to speak, um, he was still doing some ball handling. He was still initiating some offense, but like it is slowly morphed into Jeremy Sohan is back to basically just doing the stuff that he does well, and uh, that is playing defense. That's cutting. Uh, he's improved. Uh, as a three-point shooter it's not a pretty shot and he has to be open to take it but he's he's become an actual threat to hit them um so but no this is now it's kind of back to the old Sohan just energy guy play defense be a connector when you can uh it's kind of funny because I know that the Spurs want to see a little bit more from him but as 
as Wembenyama becomes more efficient, as Devin Vassell continues to to elevate his own game, like you're seeing the ball in their hands a lot more. When Keldon Johnson comes off the bench, he has the ball in his hands a lot more. So so on is kind of back to just being the the rookie year so on and you know being a little bit smarter about when he cuts there were times last year where he kind of his mindset was like I need to cut I need to cut I need to attack the glass all this stuff and it kind of muddied up the offense sometimes so you're you've seen that the wheels are turning in terms of what a half court set looks like in terms of when he can get out and run the floor not get in people's way so you can see improvements in that capacity. You can see him recognize when passes are available uh, a little bit more frequently. So there, the effects of the point Sohan experiment, you know, I don't know if you can directly attribute his improvement to that or if it's just natural progression for a, a young guy, a 20-year-old, 21-year-old, whatever he is now. Uh, but but in the long run, I think it the that whole experiment was was more about just building on the skill sets that he or the skill set that he has. So Sohan, he's not the only second year player on the Spurs. They also have Don Barlow, Julian Champagny, Malachi Branham, and Blake Wesley, four yeah. guys who I don't think most NBA fans have a strong opinion about. So of those four, who has been the most promising so far? Uh last year you would have said Malachi Branham. He came in, he looked like he belonged in the NBA from the start. He has struggled this year. He's struggled with his... He shot 30% from three last year. This is a guy who shot uh, 40% plus in college. So it was one of those, okay, adjusting to the NBA three-point line, rookie season, whatever. His mid-range is great. He's solid getting to the rim. This year, until recently, um, where he has hit a few more threes, it, the three-pointer hasn't really improved, still hovering around the 30% mark. Uh, you're seeing him struggle to get to those mid-range spots because teams aren't like they're they're not really respecting the three-point gravity. So it's it's and they know that he loves the mid-range. So now that they sort of have his scouting report, life has been more difficult during his sophomore year. So, but last year you would have said Malachi Branham. This season you're gonna either say Blake Wesley or Dom Barlow, uh, depending on who you ask. Blake Wesley. Last season, after the uh, very unfortunate Josh Primo situation, came in, was basically took his took Primo's spot as the backup point guard. And then in the second game in that role, bang knees with uh, uh, against Minnesota. I forget who it was. I think it was McDaniels um, banged his knee, had an MCL injury, was out for like two months uh n- never really had his burst back last season and one of the things about Blake Wesley is that he's a just this bursty athletic dude and when he didn't have that he wasn't skilled enough to to make up for it the game was too fast for him uh he spent a ton of time in the G League his NBA minutes were not good you get they drafted him one of the reasons they drafted him was because he's a a long sort of rangy defender you saw some of that last year uh, but this season, he ga- he he put on like ten pounds of muscle. He's been an absolute menace on the defensive end. He's picking up like some of the quickest point guards in the league, ninety-four feet, uh, pestering them. Offensively, he's still very much a work in progress. But you can tell that the game is is really slowing down for him. Last year, I've never seen somebody get blocked at the rim so much. Like every single time he got there, it's like every shot blocker just knew when to time it because it was just like get downhill get to the rim he didn't really have much creativity now he's slowing down he's like trying to dunk on people instead of lay it up he's getting he's he's been more crafty around the rim getting it up on the glass things like that so Blake Wesley has seen a a major jump Uh, he looks healthy where he didn't really last year after he came back from his MCL surgery and so he'd be the guy that I would say, though, I think a lot of people might argue Don Barlow, who looked like a giraffe, like a baby giraffe last year. Uh, Pop called him a neophyte at least five times last season. Um, and and like it, so it was one of those things where like he didn't really look like he knew what he was doing. And this is a guy who came from overtime elite. He was like the first you know guy to make it to the NBA out of overtime elite. Yep. And uh, this year he put on a bunch of muscle again, like 
you know, similar to, to Blake Wesley. You can see that in his play. He's much more under control. He can handle the ball. His jumper looks weird, but he can hit it. He has a lot of energy around the glass. Um, I still don't know exactly what he is. Like his role seems ambiguous to me going forward. I think he's probably more of a four than he is a five, but when he plays in San Antonio, or when he gets NBA minutes, he's typically playing backup five just out of necessity because that's sort of how the, the rotations go for the Spurs. But it would be between, uh, for sure, between Blake Wesley and, and Don Barlow in terms of the second-year guys who have shown the most promise. Though I, I do still think that there's room for, for Malachi Branham to sort of pick up where he left off at the end of last year, but running out of time a little bit this season. As the Spurs look forward, the big question is how are they going to accelerate this process? Especially now that we've seen how good Wimby is already. Yeah. What are your expectations for this summer? Could you see them actually taking a big swing at somebody like Trey Young, like some of these rumors suggest? Or do you think they'll take a slower approach with a focus on the draft and then kind of maybe adding on the fringes? Dude, it it depends on the day you ask me. Like, my answer to that question might be different tomorrow than it is today. And it might be different two days from now than it is tomorrow. Like I, I go back and forth on this stuff because, you know, it's not just like the consumers who are watching Victor and saying like, holy crap, like this dude is, this dude is legitimately like he's legit. The The hype was real. He might even be better than the hype. Uh, it's not just fans of the game saying that it's pop saying that like he's further along than the Spurs thought he would be. So you have to there there's just such a fine line between taking a big swing on a guy like Trey Young who I'm I have my uh, that's a whole different conversation in terms of like my thoughts on Trey Young again a guy who I might have a different opinion on tomorrow than I would today but I think the the balancing act that they're going to have to sh- that, that that they're going to have to hit is like yeah, we understand that in general, like the Spurs approach, much like, you know, much like Oklahoma City, they're kind of cut from the same cloth. They want to take the slow, uh, methodical, smart, efficient way. And not, or maybe I shouldn't even say efficient because it might take a while, but but they want to they want to make sure that they build from within, that they they understand what they have in house before they start making big swings and getting rid of all their draft capital. Uh, but at the same time, you you have that sort of that question mark of okay, we know we know what Wimbenyama is. Can't imagine what he's going to be in year two. But like this guy is is legitimately not just the future of the franchise, but the future potential face of the league moving forward. But he's he is damn near ready to go. He still is he's still raw in a couple of different areas that definitely need improvement. But that time is coming sooner rather than later. So if you have an opportunity to take a big swing, whether it be Trey Young or whoever else, uh, if you have an opportunity to take a big swing right now, do you do it or do you continue to wait for like the perfect guy? But is that is that strategy, is that path uh, the wrong path to take because you don't know how long you might be waiting. And if there's an opportunity right now, even if you think it might be like a smidge early, like a year early, a year or two early, do you just do it uh, and and take the risk? It's it's a it's a it's a tough one to decide on because I I'm not the biggest Trey Young guy. I respect him. Uh, I know that he's been the one in, in rumors. He's sort of a, an offensive ecosystem in and of himself. But there are a lot of other questions when you talk about the Spurs. Like, they value a lot the ball movement, player movement. Trey Young is not really an off-ball type of player. We've seen that over the course of his career. He's been a little bit better this year. But at this point, like, you wonder, is he going to be a guy who's going to be running off the ball, chasing space, running off screens, things like that. And then defensively, like we know what he is defensively. And the Spurs over the last couple of years have been drafting bigger players, defensive-minded players, longer guys. They want to, they, for the uh, majority of the season, especially early on, they had Trey Jones coming off the bench because they understand that in the future, he's probably going to be a sixth man. He's going to be sort of the like his brother Tyus has been for much of his career, sort of that that backup point guard who can run a second unit. 
they think of him that way. So, mm-hmm. and and not necessarily as a starter. And even like watching last night's game, like how many times did De'Aaron Fox get into the lane and then just fall back and shoot over Trey Jones? Trey Jones is a really solid player, a good player, but these small point guards, unless you're just elite in a number of different categories, are are difficult to play. Um, and it's not like Trey Young is Steph. Like he's not he's shooting forty two percent from the floor and thirty seven percent from three. Like that he's obviously a threat, but he's not the most efficient guy in the world. He's not a good finisher. So it's it's those sort of fringe all-star types and obviously like Trey Trey Young is a is an all-star caliber player but he's kind of on that bubble in that bubble area um he is looking at an extension he's eligible for an extension next summer I believe next summer uh and and I think somewhere in the neighborhood of like 60 million a year so is that something you want to commit to right now or do you want to look right they have upward of potentially four to five first round picks over the next two summers I think potentially depending on how good and Charlotte's look good recently, but like how well they do, uh, they could have six over the next two years. So do you just wait, see what you have in the draft, see what type of moves you might be able to make moving forward over the next two summers, or do you jump now because you know how good Victor Wembanyama is already. This is what they pay GMs to a lot of money to do, and I'm glad that I don't have to do it, but we can just sort of talk about the options but but that's where they are right now and it's a it's certainly a tricky situation well matthew uh thank you for answering all of our questions about the spurs but it is now time to play andrew versus the beat spurs edition now uh, hey. matthew this is our uh, weekly trivia show where andrew goes head to head with an nba beat writer this week of course matthew tynan host of small market bias which is a spurs podcast also find him on substack at corporate knowledge matthew tynan.substack substack.com um so how this works i came up with eight questions related to the spurs you're going to give me a number between one and eight it'll correspond to a question some are easy some are hard if you get it right you'll get at least two points if you get it wrong andrew will have a chance to steal for one and then we'll go back and forth until all the questions have been asked and answered so to start us off i just need a number between one and eight go three question number three Cleaning the glass currently projects the Spurs to win 21 games this season, which would be the fewest wins since Greg Popovich's first year coaching the Spurs when they won 20 games in the 96-97 season. Who was the leading scorer for the Spurs that season? Oh, no. I think I know who it is. There are two. I have two uh, names in mind, but I'm just going to go with this one because it, if I remember correctly, it's pretty funny. Dominique Wilkins? Matthew, that is absolutely correct. It was Dominique wow. Wilkins. Two points on the board. All right, Andrew, <laughs> your turn. Number one. Uh, Andrew, would you have gotten that? No. Okay. <laughs> uh, four Spurs rookies have had 30-point games under head coach Greg Popovich. Wimby, Tim Duncan, David Robinson, and this player. So a Spurs rookie to have a 30-point game. Spurs rookie to have a 30-point game under Greg Popovich. Yes, uh, there's some, like, obvious names, but I think this, Are is a, this there's, like, yeah, but I think this is probably a weird name. Okay. My guess. I mean, I'll just say Manu. I just don't, but it just feels wrong. Because uh, it feels wrong, Andrew, because it is wrong. Uh, that is incorrect. Matthew, do you know the answer to this? There are a couple of names that I have in mind. Um, but I, I'm going to go with Gary Neal. Gary Neal. I believe Gary Neal made an all-rookie team. But actually, this happened January 28th, 2023. That's right. It was Jeremy Sohan. Totally forgot about that. Totally (laughs) forgot about that. Wow. All right, Matthew, uh, the board is yours. Uh, Let's go all the way to eight. All the way to eight. Question number eight. According to Cleaning the Glass, the Spurs rank in the top five for which of the following? Half-court offense, transition offense, half-court defense, or transition defense? 
They rank top five in one of those categories. Which do you think it is? Say the categories again, half-court offense, half-court defense, transition defense, transition offense. offense. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Transition defense. That is correct. For two Surprising, actually, but it's, but yeah, they've been pretty good in, on, in transition defense somehow. All right, Andrew, you're down four zip, but you have control of the board. <laughs> uh, that's the only good news there. Uh, number two. <laughs> Question number two. All right, Victor Wembanyama currently averaging over three blocks per game, something that he will likely do many times in his career, if I had to bet. Since 2000, there have only been five players with multiple seasons of three-plus blocks. Can you name two of them? Two blocksmen. Two blockmen. Um, I think I have since 2000. I guess it got, now I'm like thinking too far back in my head. <laughs> Since 2000. It actually gets easier the further you go back because there actually were a ton of guys. I know. That's where my head is going. Like, I'm, my head just like went to Hakeem, but he, Hakeem didn't do it since 2000. So I don't think he did because I'm pretty sure he did it in the 90s. Gosh, I hate this question. Um, oh, you're so glad that I'm so glad that you have to answer first right now. <laughs> so glad. I don't, I don't even, th- I don't. I have no, honestly, I just have no idea. Uh, Shaq and Serge Ibaka. I just don't. Even know. Oh, sorry, Andrew. That is incorrect. Now, uh, Matthew, you have a chance to steal. One of those could so have both, been correct, or they could have both been wrong. incorrect. I, I don't know. I'll oh, just crap. at least one of them was incorrect. I mean, you know. <laughs> so, do you have any guesses? Five names. You only have to give me Shaq ever get three. I, I he was not on my on my mind for this question. Um, since two thousand, um, Dwight Howard, and I hate that you didn't say if one of those were right. I hate it. Um, I'll go Dwight Howard, and I'll go. I don't think Serge had did he? Damn. Oops. I don't know. I have two. I'm. I'm. <laughs> all right. All right. Dwight Howard and I'll go. Marcus Camby. Matthew, that is correct. Dwight Howard and wow, wow. Here's here's the deal. I didn't even have Dwight Howard on my list for some reason. And as soon as you said it, I said, "Well, that doesn't make sense." Uh, wait a second. Oh, I'm so sorry. You actually got it wrong. <laughs> oh. Okay. So what happened is I did go and check Dwight Howard as you were talking. And he had two seasons of 2.9 and 2.8. However, as you kept talking, I then went to Serge Ibaka's page just to double check that he had done it. And he did do it with 3.7 and three blocks. So, Andrew, you got one. Also, uh, Matthew, you did get one because Marcus Camby did it four times in the 2000s. He did it five times overall. The other names, Ben Wallace did it twice. Andre Kirilenko did it twice, which is incredible. And then Theo Ratliff. All right, Andrew, uh, you have control of the board. Oh, no, you don't. Matthew, you have control of the board. All right, let's go five. All right, question number five. Victor Weminyama is currently averaging 10 rebounds per game. Since Tim Duncan, only six rookies have averaged at least 10 rebounds per game, and we're going to name them all. So how this works, Matthew, you'll give me a name. Then Andrew will give me a name. We'll go back and forth till one of you stumbles. So this has to be a rookie other than Wemby or Tim Duncan that in that time span averaged 10 rebounds per game as a rookie. So you're talking about like since 1997, like since Tim Duncan? Correct. Since he did it as a rookie. I will go with, um, damn, I am really blanking on this. Um, Pau Gasol? Pau Gasol, that is? Incorrect. Incorrect. Andrew, to get the point, all you have to do is name one name, one rookie since Tim Duncan, who's averaged 10 rebounds per game. Did Blake do it? Blake Griffin? Ah. Blake Griffin did do it. The other names, Elton Brand, Dwight Howard, Emeka Okafor, same year, Blake Griffin, Carl Anthony Towns, and DeAndre Ayton were the other names. Wow. All right, so Andrew, you're that on was the board. Poor effort on my end. Oh my God. <laughs> well, I'll go I'll go check. I'll go see how bad it was. I'll, I'll look up Powell's <laughs> stats. I think he was probably like six or seven Ooh, now that I think about eight, it. 8.9. Oh, not okay. pretty good. 
Pretty good. Okay. okay, Andrew, you have control of the board. Down by three. That's a poor effort on Powell's part, not your part. Uh, number yeah. four. Well, how can you miss <laughs> like Dwight or Blake or Cat? <laughs> uh, okay, Andrew. What is <laughs> Devontae Graham's career high in points for a game? Now, this is the question that you get to choose who answers first. You can make oh. Matthew answer first, and then you go higher or lower. Or you can answer first, and Matthew will go higher or lower. However, if Matthew gets exactly correct, if you make him answer, he would get a bonus point, Andrew. So we'll be here. 38. 38 is where Andrew sets the bar. Matthew, would you like to go higher or lower than that? Higher. Higher. And it was higher by two points. No. He had a 40 burger. Well, it's good you didn't make Matthew answer because it sounds like he would have gotten it exactly correct. So yeah, kind of, kind of did a good job. I don't. I think job. I would have said like forty-one or forty-two. So Ooh, I don't. I do see that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, Matthew, dominating lead right now, five to one. Can't blow it. Two questions left. Number six. Number six. If Devin Vassell continued at his current pace of two and a half threes per game. He would finish the season with 191.5 three-pointers for the season. Now, that's interesting because the franchise record for most three-pointers made by a Spur is 191 set by this player. Who has the franchise record for most three-pointers in a season by a Spur? Which Devin Vassell could potentially break this season. How many threes did he have last night? Uh, he had three, three threes last night. He's on track. I feel like this even happened. Well, I mean, I, uh, this happened recently. I'm almost sure. Um, wait, hmm, is new information coming into your brain? I absolutely should know this one. Um, but I'm. Oh no, I'm blanking. Um, we can always just throw out a guess. No bad guesses. Oh, there, there, there can be a bad guess. <laughs> um. Man, I, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with Manu. Manu, most amount of threes he ever hit in a season, one fifty-six. Yeah, incorrect wow. answer, Andrew. Any guesses? What about Danny Green? Ah, oh. Andrew in the 2014-15 season, Danny Green <laughs> set the record for the Spurs. Yeah, yep. Now, Andrew, uh, it's five to two. You get first dibs at the last question. If you get this right, you'll lose by a point. Uh, which was is still losing, but it's a close loss. Yeah. Kind of like the Spurs had last night. Okay, here we go. The Coyote, the Spurs mascot, holds the distinction of being the only NBA mascot to be ejected from a game. In 2005, after a hard foul on a Spurs player by Wally Zerbiak, the Coyote pretended that he wanted to fight the ref, having others hold him back. The referee that night, Jess Kersey, yelled, I want the blank out of here and ejected the Coyote. What type of animal did the ref mistakenly call the coyote? Now, I'm going to give you five uh, choices. <laughs> one of them is correct. I think I know this. Did, did the ref say, I want the dog out of here? I want the wolf out of here? I want the kangaroo out of here? I want the chipmunk out of here? Or I want the bat out of here? Which of those, Andrew? Dog, wolf, kangaroo, chipmunk, or bat? Huh. I'll say dog. Just because it does look like a dog, but that feels he wrong. does. I feel like it would be. So, it's going to be weird, but I'll say dog. Uh, that is wrong, Matthew. Yeah. Do you remember uh, what this is? Uh, no, I actually thought it was something other than the options you gave. But I'll go chipmunk. Chipmunk. That is also incorrect. It was. I want the wolf. The wolf out of here. Well, the wolf out of here. So Matthew, congratulations. You win Andrewsy five two two. Wow. I'm wow. I'm I'm disappointed in not getting Danny Green. That was a that was so, a. You have to give me something, Matthew. You can't <laughs> feel like a complete fool over here. Well, it was it was like one of those things where Danny Green was just on this absolute tear for like three years and breaking all these three point records and everything, like in the finals and the regular season. And I, yeah, just just brain fart, man. Uh, well, go check out. The Small Market Bias Podcast, Spurs Podcast, and go check out Matthew Subsack, matthewtynan.subsack.com. Matthew, thank you so much for coming on the show. 
Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Had fun. Uh, trivia is always a good way to expose those of us who, who think we know a lot about basketball. Oh, yeah. And I'm happy to do it in such a public forum. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Andrew. That was first week. But it's time to spin the wheel of fandom once again to see which team will become our favorite team of the next week. The first full week post-All-Star break. A lot of changes post-All-Star break. So what team will we get? Let's spin that wheel. The team will be... The... New Orleans Pelicans. New Orleans Pelicans. Wow. Okay. I'm very interested to watch some Pelicans. They're they're um, kind of for the radar a bit as a team. We talked we did talk about them last week on the show, but overall, like a very under the radar team in the Western Conference. I feel like everybody kind of talks around them at times. So I'm very intrigued to kind of dig in. And they've got some great games. Uh, tonight, they play Miami at home. Then they play Chicago on Sunday. Then they go to New York to play the Knicks on Tuesday. And then the Pacers on ESPN Wednesday night. Nice. Yeah, that is great. Yeah, that's very fun. Hey, you can leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and we'll read it on the show, just like this one from Wizards Trash Talker. It says, uh, five stars, slam and jam, you thought we forgot. Picture me. Listening to Alex run down each day of the bas- of basketball the past week, waiting eagerly to get to Wednesday. Sure, the Warriors inquired about a LeBron trade with the Lakers, but Alex must be about to mention Denny Optius' 43.15 rebound explosion, an exclamation to the league that our young forward is ascending. But no, mm. the LeBron trade almost news the only story of basketball alex covered for that wednesday in february the brightest moment in a wizards fan in a wizards fan season buried by a lebron almost story wow this andrew script trying to distance himself from this surprise team pick in the wizards just know that we have not forgotten great pod keep them coming thank you so much for for that review Apparently, it's like a, also like a little platform that you can have if you want to talk about your favorite team. <laughs> so so uh, you can do that. Uh, we'd appreciate the five-star reviews. Hope you guys have an awesome weekend. Enjoy the basketball. We will talk to you guys again next week. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.